Good evening. Good to see you. Thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, and those online, thank you for tuning in as well. I appreciate you doing that. Um, tonight we're beginning a brand new study, and I, I've been excited about this for a while, and the more I've studied it, especially tonight's topic, uh, I, I've just really gotten excited at staff meeting today. I wanted to just start teaching it to them, and I didn't, but uh, uh, they get tired of hearing me. They don't want to hear more, but uh, it really is a, a, a great study, I think, that we're going to be in, embarking on for the next several weeks. Uh, I do want to clarify something, that this study is going to be different from the study we did last fall. Uh, last fall, if you'll remember, we did a study called Quick Shots, which was a video series, and it, it really focused on apologetics. That was the focus of that study, is just how do you defend your faith, and that was kind of the, the focus of that study. The study that we're talking about tonight really is focused more on discipleship. Uh, you know, we all have a list of questions that we'd like to ask God if we could somehow bend His ear, if we could get an opportunity. We all have some questions we'd like information on, and our goal is to simply ask some of those questions on Wednesday nights for the next several weeks. And hopefully get a biblical answer, discovering God's truth for our deepest concerns. And so, uh, tonight we're going to be begin that quest. And if you, don't, if you don't have an outline yet, they're available here as well as in the back. Uh, if you've ever had a nagging question about God or about your faith or about uh, you know, something you've read in the Bible. If you've ever had any of those nagging questions, I want to say something to you. Listen to me. If, you have, if you've ever had a nagging question about God or your faith, let me say something to you. Welcome to the human race. Right? It's natural that finite creatures like us would have questions about an infinite creator. Sometimes, here's the problem. We try to take the infinite God and reduce Him to finite mind. Finite me. And tonight you're really going to feel that tension. Tonight you're really going to sense that struggle. It's like, how can this be? I don't understand. I don't see how this is even possible. Let me just remind you, and I may remind you two or three times, let me remind you that we are finite creatures trying to understand the infinite. And please don't, tonight, in the middle of this study, don't say, no, I want to shrink Him down into my finite understanding. We can't shrink the infinite God. Here's what we ought to do. We, are, we ought to marvel at who He is. Rather than be frustrated that our minds can't fully comprehend and explain it all. We ought to marvel at His majesty and who He is. So, my basic point tonight so far is simply this. God is not surprised by your questions, nor is He offended by them. Some, you know, did you know that your Bible that you, you're probably holding in your hand, did you know that your Bible has 3,294 questions in it? So God's not going to be surprised that you've got a question. He's not going to be surprised that you're frustrated with something or that you don't understand something. So as we explore these questions, we're going to discover answers in the Bible that will both comfort our hearts and will challenge our minds. And I will tell you tonight, what we're going to be talking about tonight will challenge your mind. We're going to strain your brain as we talk about tonight's topic, which is, how can there be one God 
who is three persons? That's the question for tonight. How can there be one God who is three persons? Or to say it a different way, how can one God be three persons simultaneously? Feel the tension there. How can one God be three persons simultaneously? Well, tonight we want to explore that question and It really is one of the most difficult doctrines in the entire Bible. So I want to start out with just the definition. I think I put this on your notes with some fill in the blanks. Uh, This definition comes from Dr. Scott Horrell. And I thought he had a pretty accurate definition. He said, the the one true God, this is his definition of, of Trinity. The one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence, Equal in glory, distinct in relations. I like those last three descriptors. Let me read that again. The one true God eternally exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence, equal in glory, distinct in relations. You know, this is one of the great distinctives of of Christianity. is our belief in the Trinity. That's one of the great distinctives of our faith. If you look at Judaism, or if you look at Islam, or if you look at Jehovah's Witness, or the Unitarians, they all deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Every one of them. And one of the objections that that they would use, and that maybe you've heard people use, one of the objections that people have to the Trinity is simply this. They will say, well, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And they're exactly right. The word Trinity first was used around A.D. 160 by one of the early church fathers, a man named Tertullian. He was one of the first, if not the first, to use that term or one like it. So the term Trinity is not found in your Bible, but the concept of, of, of a Trinity, a triune God, is found all through your Bible. I'm going to show you that tonight as we open the Scripture. By the way, you might find this interesting. Did you know that the word Bible is not found in the Bible? We don't seem to have a problem with that. We use that term all the time. But the word Bible is not found in your Bible. Nor is the word Trinity. But let me say to you that the God of the Bible has revealed Himself as triune or three in one. And the reason it's so hard for us to comprehend that, that aspect that the, of the Trinity is that if you think about it, there is nothing in the world that compares to it. Uh, now, we, we come up with illustrations trying to, trying to explain the Trinity, but there really is nothing else like it. There's nothing else we can point to that compares to the Trinity. In fact, take your Bibles right now, and let's start in the Old Testament. And I want you to find the book of, of uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, if you're writing down the verses, it's chapter 40, verse 18. Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? It's a good question. We're not going to read all of that, but just that one statement. Isaiah makes the case, who would you compare God to? Who do you point to to say, yeah, that's what God's like. You, God is so unique. God is so different. It's hard to, for us to somehow comprehend the Trinity because there's nothing in the world to adequately compare it to. Uh, while you're still in Isaiah, go over to chapter 55. 
verses 8 and 9. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As, as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, God says, that, that's the difference between you and me. The infinite and the finite. And so we struggle sometimes because our thoughts are not like His. Our ways are not like His. A.W. Tozer, that great scholar, said, and I quote, The doctrine of the Trinity is truth for the heart. The fact that it cannot be satisfactorily explained, instead of being against it, is in its favor. And listen to this last line. Such truth had to be revealed. No one could have imagined it. I like that. Tozer said, if you really think about the whole concept of the Trinity... He said that had to be revealed by God because that's not something any of us could have imagined. So I would say to you tonight that the more you understand the Trinity, the more your perspective of God will grow and the more fascinating God will become. Hopefully we'll recognize tonight that God is mightier and more magnificent than we ever imagined. And so let's jump in. We're going to be looking at lots of different scriptures tonight. Uh, before we get into the Word though, let me just, I think this is on your notes, uh, just a couple of clues that are in the universe that God is a triune God or that God is triune uh, in, in His nature. Just a couple of clues just to get us thinking before we turn to the scripture. First of all, the universe that this triune God made, the universe is made up of three things, space, matter, and time. Now, just walk with me. Those, each of those three things, space, matter, and time, if you look at them, also are individually made up of three things. Space is height, width, and depth. Matter, solid, liquid, and gas. Time, past, present, and future. Now, maybe that's all coincidence. Or maybe all of those things were created... By a triune God. So that's the universe. But let's talk about you for a moment. Uh, you are made up of three things. Body, soul, and spirit. Again, maybe that's coincidence. But you're one person made up of three different parts. Could it be that in the universe that God created, this triune God created, could it be that in you and I, this body that God created, that He was giving us little hints that He is indeed, little clues, if you will, that He is indeed triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, with that as an introduction, I want to get into the, into the Scripture and into the heart of this study. First of all, uh, there are three foundational statements that are going to kind of serve as the guardrails for all of this that we're going to talk about tonight. And I should have said to begin with, a lot of what I'm sharing with you, I, uh, I've gotten from a book by James Merritt, uh, and he has a chapter about the Trinity, and, and so I just wanted to give him credit. Not all that I'm sharing, I've got other sources and my own personal thoughts, but I, I did want to footnote that. Alright, so three foundational truths, uh, or foundational statements, to kind of keep us on course as we're trying to understand this big concept of the Trinity. Here's the first one. 
Follow your notes and fill in the blanks. First of all, there is one God who is eternal. And I know that's foundational. That's in some ways elementary for you folks. But write it down and let's talk about it and try to understand it. There is one God who is eternal. Now, the three major world religions are Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Those three major world religions would agree on this one point, that there is one God. I'm not saying it's the same God, especially when we talk about Islam. But, but all three major world religions would agree that there is one God. And for us, and for those of the Jewish faith, that truth comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Very familiar verse to you, I'm sure. But would you open God's Word, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, 4. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. And, and for the Jewish people, uh, this is a statement of faith that, that every Jew would learn early in, in, in their lives. And they would quote this Shema on a daily basis. And let's hear it one more time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So as these Jewish people grew up, they learned this concept. There is one God and only one. Now why would that be important for them? Because they were living in a land where there were many little g gods. They were living in the land where there were little g gods everywhere. It was a pluralistic society. Uh, uh, the, the big term for that is polytheist, polytheistic. Uh, that is many gods. Uh, polytheism. Many gods. They were living in a world where there were many gods. Little g gods. And so in, the, in Deuteronomy, God makes the point, you need to understand there is only one. Ladies and gentlemen, would you agree with me? That's still true today, isn't it? There's only one God. Now, now hear me and hear me well. Christianity is not a polytheistic faith. We don't believe in many gods. We believe that there is one and only one God. But neither, listen, neither is Christianity tritheistic. Now, what does that mean? Three gods. Christianity is not tritheistic. We're not a... a, a, a uh, our belief is not that there are three different gods. We're talking about the Trinity, but we're not talking about three different gods. It's not tritheistic. It is one God. There is only one God. Now, uh, you're in the book of Deuteronomy, staying in the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah again. This time go to chapter 45. We're going to be all over the Scripture, so I hope you've got it handy and turn with me and write down these references. Isaiah 45 Verse 5. Isaiah 45, verse 5. God is speaking to His people and God says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Apart from me, there is no God. I am the Lord, there is no other. There's only one God. Uh, you find this in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse, verse 5. 
The Bible says, the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy, and Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Just one God. Now, I know that first statement is not, is not earth-shattering for you. You're Baptist, uh, you're Bible-studying people, you're here on a Wednesday night, you get that. That's, that's not a hard statement for you to comprehend. But it's going to get a little deeper with the next statement. And here's statement number two. Again, these are three foundational statements. Statement number two is this. There is one, this one God is three persons, each distinct from the other. This one God is three persons, each distinct from the other. Now, we see a hint of this in the very first verse of the Bible. You know probably what the verse says, but would you turn there so you can see it in your own Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Find that very first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning. What does it say? In the beginning... In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's something interesting about that word. And we've talked about the names of God, so we're not going to get into a name study. But there's something interesting about this word that I want to call to your attention. The Hebrew word Elohim is a plural noun uh, form. The thing that makes this word Elohim, you see the name El, that means God. E-L simply means God. And the thing that makes this plural is this suffix, this ending. I am. When you, in Hebrew, when you put an I am on the end of the word, it makes it plural. Just like if we were to put an S or ES in some cases on the end of the word, it makes it plural. So, for example, if you have a, a seraph, you know what a seraph is in the Old Testament? A seraph is one angel. But if you take that, that suffix and make it seraphim, then all of a sudden you're talking about many angels. If you have a, a cherub, again, another form of angel, which it just means one angel. If you put the I-M on the end of it, it means many angels. In the beginning, Elohim. Created the heavens and the earth. Isn't that interesting? Of the name. It does not say in the beginning, El, God, created the heavens and the earth. But it says God in the plural form. In the beginning, Elohim. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that this is many gods? Like three gods? I thought it was... One God. It is one God. Now this is where we're going to ask you to really focus. God is plural in form, but is one in being. Write that down. God is plural in form, but is one in being. You see this a few verses later. If you have your Bibles open there to Genesis 1, 
I want to show you that this is not talking about three different gods. It's talking about one God in three different forms. Uh, Let me show you this in Scripture. Uh, In chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, there is an interesting word choice in these two verses. In verse 26, God is referred to in the plural sense with the words us and our. Then God said, let us... Make man in our image, in our likeness. You see that? In verse 26, Then Elohim said, Let us make man in our image. That's clearly plural. But in the very next verse, God is referred to in the singular. Verse 27, So God, Elohim, created man in His own image. The singular His. Not in their image, but in His image, the singular. You see, the Trinity refers to the fact that there is both a a threeness to God and a oneness. I told you we're going to strain your brain, and it's going to strain it more in just a moment, but just try to grasp that, that God, as He reveals Himself to us in Scripture, reveals Himself as a God where there is both threeness and a oneness. In terms of what God is, God is one. There is one God, and I've said that over and over and over, but I want to make sure you don't leave here tonight and think somehow there are three gods. There are not. There is one God. In terms of what God is, His substance, His being, there is one God. In terms of who God is, that is His personhood, God is three. I'll say that one more time. In terms of what God is, His substance or His being, God is one. In terms of who God is, that is His personhood, God is three. All three persons of the Godhead can properly be described as God, but the three persons are not identical. So, uh, do you remember the, the game show, Will the Real... What, what was this game show? Will, Will the Real Bob Jones Please Stand Up? What was that show? It was years ago. Tell the truth. Boy, y'all remember that. All right. If, if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were on to tell the truth, and the announcer said, Will the real God please stand up? All three of them would have to stand. Because all three persons of the the Godhead can properly be described as God. But the three persons are not identical. Now, we're going to strain your brain a little bit more and go a little bit deeper. Here's number three. Each person in the Trinity is fully God. Each person in the Trinity is fully God. Co-equal. Co-existence. And co-eternal. Sometimes I think, as I was growing up, I had this, I had kind of this perception that God the Father was like in charge of everything. And then you had Jesus, who was his son, who was lesser, and then you had the Holy Spirit who was probably under him. And that is not biblical. God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit 
are coexistent, co-eternal. And what was the other word? I've forgotten what to put down. Yeah. Co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. Now, here's something that I find very interesting. In the New Testament, 12 different times, 12 different references, uh, you'll find those three names together. All three names. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 12 times in the New Testament, you'll find those three names. The interesting thing is, when they're grouped together, they're arranged in different orders. Six, six different times. Or, I'm sorry, they're arranged in six different ways. In other words, sometimes the Father is listed first, and sometimes the Holy Spirit is listed first, and sometimes Jesus is listed first. So the order is not in a particular order. In other words, the persons of the Godhead are neither inferior or superior to the other members of the Godhead. That was an important statement. The members of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are neither inferior nor superior to the other members of the Godhead. Alright, so let, let me show you what I'm talking about because I, I don't want you to ever take my word for it. I want you to sit in Scripture. And so go with me to John chapter 20, verse 17. John chapter 20, verse 17. John 20, 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned. Now remember, Jesus is speaking. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. He refers to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and to your Father to... What's that next phrase? My my God and your God. Just in your mind, would you see in this verse how Jesus referred to the Father as God? Just remember that. Now, go with me to Titus. Over to the right. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul is writing to Titus and he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 13, While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus is referred to as God. Guess where we're going next. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. He didn't say you've lied to the Holy Spirit. The first time he said you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, listen, you've lied to God. Isn't it interesting that in John 20, the Father is referred to as God. And in Titus 2, Jesus is referred to as God. And in Acts 5, the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. The Bible clearly shows us that all three persons of the Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit 
are fully God. None of the members of the Trinity are inferior or superior to the other members of the Trinity. Now, let's talk for a minute, real quickly, about our salvation in the Trinity. In salvation, each member of the Godhead plays a vital part, and every part is necessary. Let me say it to you this way. When you got saved, hopefully every person here has trusted Christ as your Savior, but when you got saved, every part of the Trinity was involved in your salvation. Every part. It's interesting, if you go to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, again, a passage of Scripture you're very familiar with, I'm sure. But in Matthew chapter 28, Again, Jesus is speaking. We know this, of course, as the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Watch this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And whenever you see me baptize, right there, You always hear me say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why do we say that? Well, we say that because it's in Scripture. But why is it in Scripture? Why did Jesus say when you baptize somebody, you mention the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Why are all three of those linked together? Because all three of those members of the Trinity are involved in your salvation. You could not be saved apart from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be so bold as to say, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you have not been saved. You can't be a Christian, a biblical salvation-born Christian, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So he said, so you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because without the Trinity, there would be no salvation, and none of us would know God. Now, let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, let let me pause because I I made kind of a bold statement there. Let me pause to say, you may not understand everything about the Trinity, but please don't deny it. Um, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of, watch this, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. All three members of the Trinity are right there Peter saying, this is how you got saved. This is how you, your life was radically changed. God the Father sanctified you through the work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ by the sprinkling by His blood. Every part of the Godhead is involved in your salvation. Uh, Dr. James Merritt, I quoted him or mentioned him earlier. Let me quote him now. 
Dr. James Merritt said, I do not fully understand the Trinity, but I know God is a Father who loves me. He is a Son who died for me, and He is a Spirit that lives within me. That's good. Let me say it again in case you want to write that down. He says, I... I don't fully understand the Trinity, but I know God is a Father who loves me. He is a Son who died for me. He is a Spirit that lives within me. And so I want to close, and I'm going to let you out early. Uh, and I'll let you out early Sunday morning. So don't get used to this. It's just a quirk, okay? But, but I'm, going to, I'm going to give you a, kind of a summary of the doctrine of the Trinity with five statements. On the bottom of your sheet there, I've given you a place. Just You need to write a lot of stuff down. So, five statements that will help you kind of grasp what the Bible says about the Trinity. Five summary statements kind of summarizes everything we've talked about tonight. And let me once again say, we are not able to fully comprehend how all five of these could be true. But this is what the Bible describes as the Trinitarian nature of God. So here, here we go. Five statements. Statement number one is this. The Father is fully God. The Father is fully God. Just trying to summarize what we've looked at tonight. The Father is fully God. Statement number two. Jesus is fully God. Statement number three. I bet you can guess it. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Number four. These three are distinct persons. These three are distinct persons. Statement number five. There is only one God. That's how we started, isn't it? The Father is fully God. Jesus is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. These three are distinct persons. There is only one God. The question is, as one writer said, the question is, will we accept... This is such a good statement. Just listen to it. Don't try to write it down. Such a good statement. He said the question is, will we accept God as He reveals Himself to us in all His mysterious Trinitarian form or will we only allow a concept of God that we can think we can more easily comprehend? Are you going to accept God as He has revealed Himself in His Trinitarian form in the majesty of who He is, uh, one God but revealed in three persons? Are you going to accept this magnificent God that has revealed Himself to us, or are you going to try to squeeze that infinite God down to your finite mind? Something you can comprehend. I want to close tonight by quoting a verse. I'm going to ask you just to, if you want to write down the reference, you certainly can do that, but don't try to look it up because I just want to quote it to you. I want you to hear these words. I found it very interesting in my study how Paul ended the very last line, the very last verse of, of the book 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the last line of the book. Paul ends that book this way. And this is my ending for you tonight. 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's a beautiful ending. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Thanks for being here. I hope you'll be back next Wednesday night as we continue to talk about I've got a question. All right? God bless.